this week and next week, I think the two weeks we'll spend walking through Joel in a little bit more detail. So you remember back to the overview last week that um, Joel is one of the prophets that we know very little, in fact, nothing about his personal life and his, uh, you know, his family, his lineage, even where he's from, aside from the fact that he's addressing Judah and Jerusalem. So most likely he's there in Judah and Jerusalem. And from our study so far in the Minor Prophets, now that, and reading it now in its place, I think our, our best guess is that this is probably a pre-exilic, a, a late pre-exilic um, prophet. And so you'll remember that um, there are four kind of circuits that move through the book of Joel. The first one and the second one are the ones we're going to look at tonight. And those two are similar, and then the third and fourth are similar. So circuits one and two are really um, about the day of the Lord, one that seems to be past and one that's pending or immediate, present, you might say. And in these two movements, so this is chapter 1, verses 1 through 20. So all of chapter 1 is the first one. And then the second goes chapter through uh, chapter 2, 1 through 17. So about halfway through chapter 2. And that's where we'll end tonight. So those two circuits. And both of them introduce the reality of the day of the Lord. So a danger. And the first one is about the locusts that have come. And then the second one is about a great army that's coming. And there's some parallels between those two. But in both of them, after the uh, judgment or the army that's coming towards them is announced or remembered, then there's a call to repentance following it as well. So um, we're just going to walk through both of these cycles. The first one, again, about the locusts, and then the second one, about the army, the northern army. So, um, looking in 1, 1 through 20, you'll see a pattern that emerges. And the pattern that we're going to be looking for is an imperative followed by a group of people that summoned or identified. Then, uh, something that they've lost with a description of the locust plague. So, as an example, look in verse 5. Say, awake, there's one of the imperatives. You drunkards, there's the person. Uh, and weep, second imperative. Third imperative, and wail, you drinkers of wine. So, there's imperatives followed by a group of people identified. And then it says, because of the new wine, for it has been cut off from your mouth. So, the drinkers have lost their drink. And then he goes on to describe the, the destruction again, 6 and 7. Uh, and then you see another example of that in 8. Lament. This is the one that doesn't have a group of people identified. And he says, what have they lost? In verse 9, the grain offering and the drink offering have been cut off from the house of the Lord. And then a further description of the locusts. Verse 11, be ashamed, farmers, wail, vine dressers. What have they lost? The wheat and the barley they've lost. Because of the harvest of the field has perished. And it goes on to describe the destruction. So that's kind of the pattern that's happening through chapter 1. At least in the call to lamentation or call to mourning based on what's happened. So let's start in verses 1 through 4 or 2 through 4. See what's happened. And uh, it still loosely follows that 
imperative summons description pattern. So the imperative, hear and give ear. And then chapter, or verse three, tell. Uh, and who's being summoned? Hear this, you elders, and then give ear all you inhabitants of the land. So uh, last week we mentioned that chapters one and two are kind of a, are a call to the elders and then to the priests. But I think I probably would amend that while the elders and the priests certainly are two of the groups, a lot of groups are mentioned here. And even in verse two, you see all the inhabitants of the land. So all of Judah and Jerusalem are being called to attention here. So a double call to hear. Um, and this is what's going on, middle of verse two. Has anything like this happened in your days or even in the days of your father's? Next imperative, tell your children about it. Let your children tell their children and their children another generation. So a few things by way of introduction are happening already in verses two and three. And that is he's introducing the idea of days. So Joel is about the day of the Lord. And he asks the oldest ones present, in all of your days, have you seen something like this? So contrasting their memories and their, all, of, all of their histories, the many 24-hour days they've experienced, to this grand idea of the day of the Lord. So everything they can remember, all their days don't compare to the great and terrible day of the Lord. Um, and then the call to tell their children about it in relationship to verse 4, which is the fact that a locust plague has come. Uh, this is a, is a reference back to Exodus chapter 10. So in the middle of Moses' interactions with the Pharaoh... He keeps going back to Pharaoh, right? Let my people go, let my people go. And God progressively is giving them uh, more and more of these plagues. Well, Exodus chapter 10 begins. Now the Lord says to Moses, go to Pharaoh, for I've hardened his heart and the hearts of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine before him, and that you may tell in the hearing of your sons and your son's son the mighty things I have done in Egypt. And my signs which I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. So the idea that the fathers would tell their children and they would tell their children's children uh, was present in Exodus chapter 10. Uh, so Moses goes to Pharaoh and he tells uh, him that exact thing. And he says, let my people go or uh, that they may serve me. Or else, if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your territory. So it is in relationship. He's, he's referencing back the eighth plague of the great plague of locusts. And he's saying there's this ironic twist because what, um, what the people of Israel were supposed to do was they were supposed to see God's judgment on the nations and that was the great thing they told to their children. And now instead, the great judgment of locusts is coming on the house of Israel and that's what they're going to be telling their children. Um, so not a good progression in Israel's history to move from the ones who are being delivered to the ones who are being judged. But that's the reference back to Exodus chapter 10. So then uh, verse 4, um, once again, remembers back the great plague in Egypt. And, and Joel's saying, this has never happened like this uh, since then, basically. And he gives this very all-consuming description of what the locusts have done in verse 4 with four different references to locusts, could be different like stages in their life, could be different uh, swarms or types of these locusts. We don't really know what he's referencing, but uh, that it's all consuming is his point. So what the chewing locust left, the swarming locust ate. What the swarming locust left, the crawling locust has eaten. And what the crawling locust left, the consuming locust has eaten. So there's this complete thorough desolation um, of the harvest of the land. 
So that's what's happened. And now he jumps very strongly into this uh, pattern, the imperative summons and description. So let's um, start in five through, or continue in five through seven. So awake drunkards weep, wail all you drinkers of wine. What did they lose? Because of the new wine, for it has been cut off from your mouth. Here's verse six is the the strongest verse in favor of the locusts being metaphor because it references a specific nation. Um, For a nation has come up against my land, strong and without number. His teeth are the teeth of a lion and he has the fangs of a fierce lion. He has laid waste my vine and ruined my fig tree. He has stripped it bare and thrown it away. Its branches are made white. So the first group called to mourning, called to lamentation are the drunks. (laughs) And he says, If anything would wake them up, it's the fact that there's no more drink. So uh, their very pattern of life, their indulgence, their reveling in Israel's abundance is going to be put to an end, whether they like it or not, because the tap got shut off from their drinking, So, which is the product um, of the locusts, that the, the, the vines have been laid bare. Uh, And then the further description, six and seven, of what the locusts are doing, um, that they are many in number, that they are vicious and fierce and very destructive as the point of six and seven. So group number one is the drunkards, and they're called toward basically being awake rather than being lost in their wine. Verses eight through ten is our second group. And this is a very general call because no specific group is mentioned. So lament. And instead of calling out a specific group, he gives an illustration of how they're intended to lament. He says, lament like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the husband of her youth. So someone who is probably betrothed because she's identified as a virgin, perhaps even someone, let's just say like day one of the marriage ceremony. She's the, the, her husband The husband of her youth, her beloved one, has died. And so rather than being able to consummate the marriage, rather than being able to enjoy and build a life together, he's snatched out from um, her side and she is left alone with sackcloth. That's how they're intended to mourn. So mourn in a way that would be very deep, very sorrowful. This is not the normal way of life. This is not as things were intended to be. Right? A bride is not supposed to lose her groom on day one of their marriage. What did uh, the general populace lose? He turns his attention to the temple. He says the grain offering and the drink offering have been cut off from the house of the Lord. So they're no longer able to worship as they were intended to worship. The grain offering and the drink offering were uh, attended a morning and an evening sacrifice uh, in, the, in the temple. There would be a sacrifice, uh, yeah, both morning and evening of a lamb, and they were brought with uh, both a grain and a drink offering, which was just wine and flour for the grain offering, or uh, flour and oil for the grain offering, and then wine for the drink offering. So that's been cut off as well, which has resulted in the mourning of the priestly category. So the priests mourn who minister to the Lord, And for the description of what the locusts have done, the field is wasted, the land mourns, for the grain is ruined, the new wine is dried up, the oil fails. Again, thorough desolation. Group number three, so we have the drunkards and then 
the general populace mourning like a bride who's just lost her husband. The third group is the farmers and the vine dressers. So he says, be ashamed, imperative, or uh, probably better, a word picture of wilting. So an, an ironic word picture like, wilt, you farmers, wail, you vine dressers. What have they lost? The wheat and the barley. Uh, the harvest of the field has perished. So they have lost their livelihood as well. That which would make them to rejoice is also gone. All of their livelihood, all of their success, their food. So the, the drink of the drunks, the offering of the general populace, and the food of the farmers is all gone. Very vivid and uh, beautiful picture, or maybe dark, <laughs> darkly beautiful picture in verse 12. There's five trees, or five plants, but five trees. So the vine is dried up, the fig tree is withered, the pomegranate tree, the palm tree also, and the apple tree. All the trees of the field are withered. And he uses those as a metaphor to say, surely joy has withered away from the sons of men. So joy would be the fruit of the tree and the sons of men are the tree. So humanity or Israel has lost everything. It's lost its vitality, its joy, purpose, you might say, intention um, of a fruit tree would be to produce fruit. And so if that's not happening, then they have been brought low. Group number four, here uh, are the priests. So imperatives, gird yourselves, lament, priests, wail, you who minister before the altar. Then maybe to show it's the last one, he gives another set. Come, lie all night in sackcloth, you who minister to my God. So the priests are called into question. And what is it that they have lost? Well, the same thing that the general populace lost. The they've lost the ability to offer their sacrifices because the grain has been destroyed and the wine has been cut off. So there's no more grain offerings and no more drink offerings. They've been withheld from the house of God. So what should they do? In light of all this, certain that first is the call to mourning. All of the imperatives here, awake, weep, wail, lament, uh, wilt, wail, gird yourselves, lament, wail, come, lie all night. How should they respond? Well, here's the first of two. Again, the second uh, cycle will have a parallel and an expansion of this call, but it's a call to fasting. So it's a call to repentance and to worship. And he uh, says, get everybody together. Call a special feast day or a, a special fasting day. Consecrate this day, set it apart, set it apart, sanctify it. Consecrate the fast, call everybody together, call sacred assembly, gather the elders and everybody. So that goes back to verse one, the elders and all the inhabitants of the land. Into the house of the Lord your God and do what? And pray <laughs> and cry out to the Lord. So true worship, genuine worship and pleading with God for deliverance is what they're called to do. We'll leave it there for the moment because that'll be picked up again in the second cycle and expanded. So here is the first time in verse 15 that it's specifically the day of the Lord that's mentioned. It says, alas or woe for the day of the Lord, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It has come as destruction from whom? Source. Where did the locust come from? From the Almighty. So who is it then that cut off food before their eyes? It's the Almighty that did. 
Who is it that cut off joy and gladness from the house of their God? It was God that did that. Again, description of what's happened. The seed shrivels under the clods. Storm houses are in shambles. Barns are broken down. The grain is withered. The animals groan. The herds of cattle are restless because they have no pasture. Even the flocks of sheep suffer punishment. So it's not only people, not only the crops, also the animals. All three categories have been brought low. So true worship is what's called for. The lamentation, sackcloth, ashes, and a fast crying out to the Lord. Then Joel does that explicitly in verse 19. And then by way of uh, word picture, the beasts also pray. So everyone, all of the creatures affected respond to God. None of the content of their prayer is mentioned here. That's reserved for verse 17 of chapter 2. But here he says that it's to the Lord that he cries out. Um, and all through 19 and 20 is the metaphor of fire. So fires devoured the open pastures. A flame has burned all the trees of the field. Then the beasts join him to cry out to the Lord, for the water brooks are dried up, and fire has devoured the open pastures. So, and cycle one. So this um, call to attention, followed by a description of what's going on, then everybody, all these different categories of people, lament, and offer true worship, direct it towards God in prayer. Perhaps he will hear you, perhaps he will respond. So that general flow is what we're now going to see a second time. And just notice the attention of maybe where it's focused. So the first time it's, hey, look what's already happened. Um, it, It seems to be past. He's calling all the older people to say, anything like this happened in your day? No, this is the worst it's ever been. Yes, because it's the day of the Lord. And now... Um, rather than calling people to look at what has happened, he's calling them to look at what's about to happen. So chapter two, sound the alarm, blow the trumpet. In Zion, sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble because the day of the Lord is coming. It's at hand. So it's on the doorstep. It's present. It's a present hand, a present day of the Lord. A day of darkness, gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like the morning clouds spread over the mountain. A people come great and strong, the like of whom has never been, nor will there ever be any such after, uh, even for many successive generations. So you see chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 being parallel to chapter 1, 2 through 4. Call to attention, sound the alarm. What's going on? The day of the Lord is at hand. And then a description of the army that's coming, a lot like the locusts in verse 4 of chapter 1. Differently than the first cycle, the way he goes on to describe uh, what's going to happen is rather than calling all the people to attention with imperatives and naming them, he describes the march that's beginning to take place. Um, It's a little bit, well, that, this, so maybe this is a silly illustration, but it's a little bit like the scene, if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, the scene in Lord of the Rings and the Mines of Moria, when they're reading the histories of what's happened, and you, they're like, you can recount the movement of the enemies towards them, and like the sound of the drums is getting louder, and they're, they're you know, trying to steady in their fortress, and then it's like they're coming, they're coming, they're here. That's sort of an idea. And that's the, the feel of these verses. So um, verses three through five, they're really far away. 
Right, says a, so they're, they're on their way. Hear, hear about the enemy march in verses three through five. A fire devours before them and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them and behind them like a desolate wilderness. So that's what's happening as they make their march. The Garden of Eden is disappearing from before them and what's coming out behind them is this desolate wilderness. So complete destruction, fire, burning, devouring. Surely nothing shall escape them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses. So they're coming swiftly like swift steeds. So they run with a noise like chariots over mountains. They leap like the noise of a flaming fire that devours the stubble like a strong people set in battle array. So you can, this is unstated here, but you can almost imagine the messenger, the someone that escapes from the past battles that runs forward to tell of this great army that's coming. And he's like, they're fast and their chariots are strong. And it's like they can jump over mountains. Nothing will stand in their way. Everything that's behind them is just stubble, burnt rubble, nothing. Uh, then they're visible. <laughs> they can actually see them. Um, this is verses six through eight. So before them, the people writhe in pain and all faces are drained of color. So there's this, there's this pale, like we saw them and it's, it's, uh, it's painful. They're running like mighty men. They climb the walls like men of war. And it describes their formation and how coordinated every individual is together. Everyone marches in formation. They don't break ranks. They don't push one another. Everyone marches in his own column. Though they lunge between the weapons, they are not cut down. So just they just keep pouring into or towards the city. Nothing seems to get in their way. They can brush off your weapons. Um, this is how strong they are. And then in verse 9, the city is breached and ravaged. And there's, again, complete destruction. So they run to and fro in the city. They run on the wall, they climb into the houses, they enter at the windows like a thief. So the city's being plundered. 10 and 11, so 10 summarizes and moves more to like a natural disaster view or something very similar to uh, chapter 3. Verses 30 and 31, description of day of the Lord. Uh, um, the earth quaking, the heavens trembling, the sun and moon growing dark, and the stars diminishing their brightness. So uh, a very dramatic and natural disaster picture of how dark this day is. Now, verse 11 is crucial because it tells us sort of uh, the secret <laughs> about this army. And it is that the Lord is the commander of the army. So the Lord gives voice before his army. Then three parallel phrases. Because or for his camp is very great. For strong is the one who executes his word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Summarizing question. Who can endure it? Silent answer being no one can endure it. Or he might say the righteous can endure it, um, which the, the family of Israel is not. So um, that is a, that's a very important piece of revelation, isn't it? <laughs> that God is the commander of the enemy force. Something that would be very intimidating. Something that uh, would be perhaps surprising. At least Habakkuk was surprised by the idea. So, 
Let's, let's carry on and then paint the distinction. So it's, it's, keep that in mind as we move into verse 12, which is the move from the description of the scenario into the, the call to action. So he says, Now therefore, says the Lord, more imperatives, turn. Turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. So that's what they're supposed to do. Why? Because of his character. Because in verse 12 or 13, middle of verse 13, he's gracious, merciful, slow to anger, of great kindness, and he relents from doing great harm. The word is ra'ah, which is great evil. So he turns from doing that. Uh, Who knows, maybe even if you do this, he will turn and relent. And instead of great devastation, he'll leave a blessing. Uh, And the blessing would be a grain offering and a drink offering. What does that mean? It means that there's harvest again. It means that there's plenty in the land. So maybe you will have a return uh, to prosperity. Um, In order that you would worship him with it, in order that you would use it to worship. So... In the middle, there's kind of these two pictures then painted of who God is. God as the destroyer, the commander of the enemy armies. Maybe not destroyer because he's using an instrument to destroy. But as the the one who's bringing judgment, the cursor. And then the one who would be their ally, the, the blesser, the deliverer. So rather than, I think in, in this instance, and we won't spend the time doing this tonight, but rather than reconciling those two ideas of the sovereignty of God in sending something that is evil and then being the one to whom you call for deliverance, let's just let those two sit there as Joel does. He is the commander of this army and he is the one that they should cry to. So the fact that he exists in both of these the realities really gives them two options of how to respond. It's either get ready for battle or repent. Which one, which one will they do? Which one should they do? Because you can be angry about the fact that God sent this army. You can think he's, un, he's cruel or he's unjust by sending this army. You could think whatever you want, but the reality is he sent the army. <laughs> And you could go back to why he sent it. Why do you send it? Well, go look back to Deuteronomy 28. Go look to the other prophets. What have the people done? They've broken the covenant. God's keeping his word. He's bringing the curse that attends disobedience. So he's simply doing what he said many, many years before that he would do. Nevertheless, he's doing it. And he's using uh, an evil army to accomplish it. When Habakkuk replies to that, like, hey, how could you do this? How could you be good? He basically calls Habakkuk to remember the two categories. He's like, remember, there's the proud, and then there's the just, and the just live by faith. And the proud, instead, return, they basically make war with me. So here in Joel, and we're not looking at the second part tonight, but in the second part, uh, Joel calls the armies to war. He calls the nations to war with God. And so it's interesting that he's, he's saying, if you're going to be righteous, if you will move toward the righteous category, then the response would be humility, lowliness, putting yourself down, believing the character of God as he self-revealed it, and humbling yourself in worship. Nations aren't going to do that, uh, at least not you know, in this great day. Instead, he calls them, go ahead, proud ones, Beat your plows into swords and go fight God. So which will you do is sort of the question, the, the unstated question in Joel. 
and the, the right thing to do uh, would be to worship him and to revere him. Um, to turn with your heart. And of course, we've seen that quite often. We know that that's a, a, a biblical theology theme in the Old Testament, that what God truly desires is not just the habit of or the, the ordinances of worship, the rituals themselves, but he wants is actually the person, their insides. So he says, with all of your heart, turn to me. And yeah, there's external things present, aren't there? Fasting, weeping, mourning. But it needs to be genuine. It needs to be true. It needs to be whole personed. So, and this is the only time this illustration is used in scripture, uh, rend your heart and not your garments. A lot of times we'd be familiar with the picture of circumcising your heart. He says circumcision is a very external sign. He says that needs done to your heart. Well, another sign, which is consistent with the call to Joel, he's called them to uh, lamentation, toward mourning, toward weeping. So he says, weep with your heart, rend your heart, tear that, rather than your garments, or maybe do tear your garments, but do so with the true motive of repentance. Uh, and in so doing, return to the Lord. Again, why would you do that? Why would you return to God? Well, because of the second picture. And he's referencing Exodus once again. Um, in Exodus 34, after Moses has led uh, the people out of the land across the Red Sea, and they're at Sinai. He's received the commandments. He comes down the mountain. They're worshiping the golden calf, and he breaks uh, the, the, the two tablets. And then, in his kindness, God re-gives the commandments. And it's in that text that God self-reveals his character, and he says, for the Lord your God is gracious and merciful. So that become, uh, becomes one of the things that Israel looks back to, is God himself saying that this is who he is. So he's gracious, merciful, slow to anger, and then of great kindness. That kindness is our chesed, there's the loyal love present, and he turns from doing harm. So you turn to him, he will turn from cursing you. Verse 14 has an important note in it that Joel does not promise the immediate relenting of God because he can't promise the immediate relenting of God. Um, God is not controlled even by the repentance of people. Right? God is free to do what God desires to do, and he will always desire to and do that which is right. So he gives this sort of who knows? Maybe you need to do what's right. And if God sees fit, then perhaps he will relent. Perhaps you will receive a blessing. Perhaps the crops will grow again. If so, the intention is so that you would use all of that to worship him truly with a rended heart. Okay, then 15 through 17 is our last piece for tonight. And this should look immediately familiar. If you look back to verse 14 of chapter 1, it says, Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and nursing babes, let the bridegroom go out from his chamber and the bride from her dressing room. So everybody has to get together. He describes that even more thoroughly this time than he did last time. 
that everyone gets together, including the babies, so like the, the ones who would be innocent, the ones who would actually have no knowledge, uh, those ones are intended to be there. And then even hearkening back to the virgin and her lost husband. So now those other married ones, the bridegroom and the bride, from out of uh, their chamber. So the chamber and the dressing room in the Hebrew poetry are parallel. It's the same room. And this is the room that the marriage would be consummated in. So he's saying, pause everything. Everybody get out here now. This is immediate. It has to happen this moment. And when he does that, what's supposed to happen next? Well, the same thing that was supposed to happen in 14. You see, consecrate the fast, call the sacred assembly to gather the elders. What is the end, the last line of verse 14? And cry out to the Lord. So here he actually supplies the prayer for them. He says, the priest, verse 17, you who minister to the Lord, get to your spot. Get to your assigned station. Go do what you're supposed to do. Weep between the porch and the altar. So the porch would be where the people are gathered. The altar is where the sacrifice happens. So this is intercession. And you stand there and here's what you say. Here's your prayer. Spare your people, O Lord. So it's a call toward, for God to be merciful. Why would you ask God to be merciful? Verse 13, because God has said he is. So we're claiming the promise of God, holding God to his promise. Be merciful. And then there's two motivations for God to be merciful in this prayer. The first one, he says, and don't give your heritage to reproach that the nations should rule over them. So God, we're your people. We're your stuff. We're your inheritance. Don't give us away. If you give us away, then your inheritance is squandered. Sort of a measly inheritance in some ways, but that's who he's identified them to be and setting his favor on them. So they're saying, don't give away your prized people. Don't give away your covenant nation uh, because then you just gave your stuff to your enemies. Actually, I think this is a very big aside, but... Uh, I think that's, that's a good argument and one of the reasons that uh, I believe that God is going to renew this earth rather than destroy it and recreate one because this is his stuff. He made this and he doesn't give it over to his enemies. You know, he's going to, he redeems his stuff. And so uh, they're saying, don't give your heritage to reproach. So that's reason number one. Uh, and reason number two is the end of verse 17. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? So don't let your name or your reputation be challenged. Don't let people like look at us and say, God disappeared. God wasn't for you. God's not powerful. Our gods beat your God. Um, because that says something about the reputation of God. Now that's it's amazing because if, if Israel had truly prayed this prayer or had been praying this prayer, then it would have prevented them from their sin. If they cared about the reputation of God or they cared about what the nations thought about God, then they wouldn't have adopted all the gods of the land. They wouldn't have set up you know, all of these uh, foreign high places. And so this really is a prayer toward what God loves, which is a good prayer strategy. Right? It's calling him to himself 
rather than calling him to what you have done or your habit of obedience. That's one of the the ways that Job erred. He called God to himself, right? He said, I have been just. God's like, that's not the point. (laughs) Uh, Call me to me rather than calling me to you. And Israel wouldn't have been able to do that in a very uh, non-hypocritical way anyways. So, uh, so that ends cycle two. There's a very uh, sort of dramatic pause because it ends with a prayer going up. You'll see in verse 18, it says it, there's the answer. The, the two next circuits are kind of the answer, how God responds in favor of his people. So verse 18, you know, then the Lord will be zealous for his land and he will pity his people. So he responds positively, uh, but there is kind of a, there's an intentional break right there between, between these two sections. So um, a few thoughts of application. In cycle one, remembering if this is a literal locus, I believe that it is, even if it isn't, if it's a metaphor, uh, that God is over all of the natural realm. That that is his resource to send, to use for his pleasure, to bless and to curse. He can use um, animals, rain, lightning, thunder. All of these things are sort of at his disposal, as vividly demonstrated in Exodus with the plagues. So that we would respond to um, what occurs naturally with worship would be a good thing for us to learn from Joel chapter 1. That we should, whether it's blessing, we should praise him, or cursing, we should cry out to him. Um, That as he uses providentially his stuff to accomplish his means, that we would respond in worship. Then in the second circuit, Holding the realities of God sending or intending things that are evil for his purposes and then also being the one that he asks or that that we should cry to, you can pretty easily see how that would be a point of criticism for the skeptic. How they would say, so you're saying like God's sitting there pummeling you and just saying, just ask me to stop. I'm merciful. No, there's that a little bit of a feel to it. But being willing to hold, as Joel does, these realities that do speak to the grand authority of God and acknowledging that there is a choice of how we would respond. And the response is one of two ways, both present in Joel. Either get your sword, go to war. You don't like him, fight him and see how it ends. Or believe that what he said is true and that there is a way for him to be gracious and merciful and also send Assyria. And if that's true, then we should worship him. So which one is it? That's it's sort of, it's a, it calls the question to God of which way we're going to go. Um, and then to remember uh, the beauty of God's freedom, that we do not, our prayers even, our righteousness, our worship, anything that we could possess uh, does not control the hand of God. It moves it according to his desire. But it doesn't control it. Verse 14, who knows if he will turn and relent. 
Um, yeah, the proper response. Then the, the, maybe the last piece of application, verse 14 in chapter 1 and the verses 15 through 17 in chapter 2. The proper response to all, uh, whether it's correction and judgment, the movements of God toward difficulty would still be uh, to, worship, to worship him, to return, to, ha- to seek a genuine heart. And we know that that's developed very beautifully in the New Testament, that that's something that God has accomplished in us, as prophesied in Ezekiel, that he gives us a new heart, a heart of flesh in exchange for a heart of stone. And so now we have the opportunity to live consistently with the one who gave us a new heart, and that is in the virtues of Christ, like we saw in Colossians. So uh, for us today, a heart of gratitude and rejoicing that God did what we could not do in being the true worshiper um, is something that we would be very grateful for as well. So uh, done a little bit early, but any questions, comments on chapters 1 and 2, part A, before we're done for the night? there's the opportunity for mercy perhaps but that's again that's a function of his sovereignty so you know, justice is a big element in here too yeah so both movements of God in his sending the Assyrians and in his sending deliverance are both consistent follow-ups from his self-revelation so yeah he promised the curse long before he cursed Mm-hmm. Yep, the very end of Habakkuk follows up with this idea very beautifully. There's a lot of parallels between this and Habakkuk. Um, the other one being the, like, the sending of the army. I think that chapter 2 is um, after Habakkuk says, what are you doing? How is this consistent with your character? He says, write the vision. And then the vision is, behold the proud. (laughs) That's who these people are. Behold the proud. His soul is not upright in him. Therefore, that I'm using him and that I'll judge him are both on the table. He says, but just live by faith. So again, two categories. How are you going to respond to God? Uh, But then, yeah, as you said, uh, chapter three, the end, is one of the most beautiful portions of all of the prophets. Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail, and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet. He will make me walk on my high hills. Just the right response.